Welcome to the Theology Podcast. It's great to have you here. And uh, I am C.R. Wiley, and today I'm in Connecticut at the Connecticut House. And for those of you out there in podcast land who keep track of things, sometimes I'm here and sometimes in, in the state of Washington. And the reason I'm in the state of Washington most of the time is because I serve a church there uh, just outside of Portland in Vancouver. That's At least that's where we meet. And that is Westminster Presbyterian Church. Great folks. Glad to be there. I've written some books, taught philosophy, and done other things. And my latest book is in the house of Tom Bombadil. But enough about me. Why don't we kick it over to you, Tom? Uh, Tom Price. I'm a teacher above all things. <laughs> I teach at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, one of the places. I teach uh, theology, Christian ethics, and philosophy. Great. Glenn? I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a professor emeritus of history, which means that I am retired um, from Central Connecticut State University, specialist in early modern Europe. Uh, I am also currently a ministry associated Reflections Ministries and a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. Well, thanks for the introductions, guys. And now it's time to introduce the subject of the day, and it's my day. We've had some interviews recently, but we're back to just the three of us. And today I want to talk about Dirty Harry and why Dirty Harry may be I know this is a stretch, and I know that there are folks out there listening who are going to have a hard time even conceiving that this is even a possibility. Maybe the best Christian film of 1971. Maybe, maybe the entire decade. And uh, now, now I know if you've seen... I, now, now, Chris, Chris <laughs> I remember the films from the decade of the 70s. You're setting a low bar. <laughs> that's, right, that's right. That's true. It's true. It was a gritty time. Uh, Dirty Harry came out in 1971. I, I think I, I said that, and I was nine years old at the time. I I was I was one. <laughs> <laughs> You're making me feel old, guys. <laughs> but I remember I remember the time vividly because I was uh, living in the penumbra of Washington uh, Washington University in St. Louis. And uh, my father was, you know, on faculty there, and I was in that kind of bohemian. Know, very liberal, artsy environment. And uh, Dirty Harry is a very gritty film, and it was a gritty time. I mean, there were other gritty films that were uh, made and uh, produced in, in that, that period, uh, cop shows like uh, Serpico. Remember Serpico? Yeah. Uh, and remember uh, French Connection? You know? Yeah. So those were some gritty films, too. But Dirty Harry really sticks out as sort of as a, uh, a, I guess, exemplar of the kind of uh, filmmaking that was, uh, you know, going on in the in the early mid '70s, and was left behind with the advent of Star Wars. Star Wars was sort of the thing that changed everything for for the late '70s and into the '80s in terms of everything became much more upbeat, bright, optimistic in you know hollywood now things are just weird but you know during the during the 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 80s you know we had a number of of uh, things like you know et and um you know uh you know uh, back to the future and you know th th those sorts of films that were kind of feel good pop films but you didn't have that in the early yeah. 70s yeah, Chris, you're you're missing the one that really changes filmmaking in in the '80s, and that's Raiders. 
Yeah, Raiders of the Lost Ark is another great one. Yeah. If, yeah. if you watch any film before Raiders, the pace is going to seem sluggish. Yeah. Raiders ups the pacing of films all by itself, single-handedly. It, yeah. it completely changes the way, way films are done. Yeah, yeah. So I want to say a few things, but uh, sort of yeah, make some caveats here with regard to, to, to Dirty Harry and, and, you know, why are we talking about Dirty Harry today and stuff like that? Well, the first caveat, it, it, not only is it a, a gritty film, but there's gratuitous nudity in the film. Uh, it's a very violent film. Um, and it's a hard film uh, to watch if you're a sensitive person. And it's not the, a film for family film night. You know, anyone who's listening to this show should just take the idea that maybe this would be a good film to watch with the wife and kids and just throw it out the window. This is not a film like that. Uh, but I think there's a case to make for what I said earlier. Tom, go ahead. Yeah, um, just something, you know, I, I was looking at a, 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 you know, kind of going back a little bit in, in some of the story behind what was going on then. And uh, from what I understand is there, there is a kind of uh, play in, in that story of some of the real things that were happening, of course, at the time, one of which was that, 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 uh, that world of the Zodiac killer and the, uh, the symbolism uh, in the California murders that was very significant. And from what I understand, that was kind of a, uh, the way in which law enforcement basically had the inability um, to catch this this guy, uh, be outwitted, um, really plays into the significance of the kind of character that Dirty Harry is. But maybe I'm, I'm jumping into the content too quick, so maybe I'll back up on. Well, that, it's yeah. it's good to note that the, the sort of the, uh, the contemporary environment uh, that the film uh, was made in, and and of course was appeared in. I think you know when you think about the '60s. As a kid, it seemed like every day somebody was getting shot. I mean, famous people. I'm not just talking about yeah. uh, gang violence. But I remember, you know, uh, you know, during that period, obviously, MLK, uh, uh, Robert Kennedy, um, you know, even, um, oh, the, 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 the governor of Georgia um, destroying. Hmm? George, was it? Wallace was shot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. George Wallace. So, I mean, this, that kind of thing uh, was going on. And you had Kent State, um, yep. you know, people right. getting shot during, you know, protests. And, and the protests uh, in those days, they didn't have much, I guess, reticence to put down protests with, with high power hoses and, you know, yeah. uh, riot police and stuff like that. Today, it's just much more, uh, I think people are much more sensitive to the optics. I think maybe that period of time was yeah. a period of time in which, uh, government uh, sort of crowd control and efforts to enforce the law really became aware of how uh, an image taken out of context can can really harm uh, law enforcement, uh, not just in terms of its public image, but just in terms of people's faith in it uh, yeah. and willingness to support it. So uh, there was a lot going on. And I remember those days, like I said, uh, vividly. And I, I actually sort of nostalgic for them sometimes. I don't know. I, I, I watch films from that period. And the thing that I'm nostalgic for is kind of the tough mentality that you see often in those films. And it was a mentality that I was familiar with in real life. <laughs> there were there were more people that, that were like that than there are today. 
Yeah, be- before we get into the plot itself, there's there are a couple of cultural things that are worth noting here. Um, I grew up in the 60s. I remember the 60s. And I remember thinking that political assassinations were something that was sort of normal, right. a normal part of life. Yeah. Um, and I look at that now and I think, wow, you know, that what an era to, to have had as your formative years. I mean, um, the other thing, though, to remember is that particularly with the counterculture, there is a push against, let's call it censorship in the movies. You know, you used to have this code that would uh, not allow you to show certain things in films. Um, you know, a kiss couldn't last more than, you know, two seconds or something like that. And nudity, uh, explicit violence, things like that were completely out. It, well, they got rid of the code. And that's one of the reasons why the films in the 70s are really, even by modern standards, they're pushing the envelope in terms of, of uh, gratuitous, gratuitous nudity, violence, and things like that. Yeah, and um, it's, it, it has to do with a backlash against, you know, what happens when you get rid of the code? Okay, let's see how far we can push this. And then they back off of it as you're getting into the 80s. Yeah, I think that's uh, right. I also think that the that we see an odd reversal today. The people who are clamoring for censorship are the leftists. And right. in those days, the people who were the, you know, in support of decency in public were the conservatives. And now, now with certain libertarian streaks in conservatism, it's, it's like, we need to bring dirty Harry back. <laughs> there's there's that, that kind of, that kind of tone that, that I, I pick up sometimes, uh, in certain sectors of the, of the conservative world. Um, so I want to, you know, I want to make certain that people don't think that we're trying to uh, pretty up Dirty Harry at all. Uh, we're not trying to say that this is family entertainment. We're not trying to say that this is something that uh, is altogether uh, positive. I mean, I, there are things about the film that I don't think were necessary to, uh, in terms of to get the to tell the story. Um, and there were, you know, I, like any film, there are a lot of people involved. Uh, but I do think that it's a work of Christian imagination, and I want to make a case for that. And it's not the only one. I think that there are things that we can see in Dirty Harry that we see in other films that people don't know, normally associate with the Christian faith, like Gran Torino, another uh, Clint Eastwood film, I think is a work of Christian imagination. I think, um, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou?, you know, that's definitely, that's fun. You know, it's kind of lighthearted, and, but there's stuff going on. There are tropes, there are types, you know, there are lots of things happening in the plot and with uh, s- sort of symbolic uh, events and so forth. Um, you know, I think Cool Hand Luke, which is another period piece, uh, I think it came out just a little before Dirty Here. I think it's late 60s, if I remember right, or mid 60s. But that definitely is full of Christian imagery. Although the agenda with Cool Hand Luke is not the same agenda as we see with Dirty Harry. Uh, it's a very different agenda, but it's definitely a work of Christian imagination. Um, so anyway, those are some things that, that I wanted to say before we get into some of the detail on Dirty Harry. Anything else you guys want to throw in before we kind of have some fun with this? Um, 
I think mine will probably come in a little bit better later because I think it has to do with kind of that in that symbolism, um, the way in which redemptive and, and uh, sacrifice and, and justice come into tension. Oh, yeah. But I think we can wait. We can wait for that. And, and then we can roll with that once you go yeah. through it through, through the themes. Well, I want to yeah. I want to give a hat tip before we go any further to James Abernathy, who was the guy who actually suggested to us originally to do something on Dirty Harry. And he, he sent us an article in uh, Law and Liberty that is, is a good, good article, and we'll link uh, that article in the show notes. Yeah, Glenn. Yeah, another thing that, that is worth keeping in the back of your mind is Eastwood's work in Spaghetti Westerns. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, now, again, I wouldn't exactly describe those as necessarily Christian films. But there are a number of them, um, particularly something like High Plains Drifter. Oh, yeah. Where he is really an avenging angel. Yeah, yeah. Well, you've, Or in his case, in that one, probably an avenging ghost. The, but, the Unforgiven. Know, he's, he's I mean, there's that a, kind of role. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Pale Rider is another Eastwood yeah. one that's like that. But yeah, you're right. It's, it's the avenging angel or the avenging ghost. And here's, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tip my hand. I think that Dirty Harry is the avenging Christ. It's Christ coming in judgment. Now, getting kind of that in the right frame of of reference is important. So one of the things we don't think about with relationship to Christ is he is the judge of the world. That is in the Apostles' Creed, (laughs) right? He's going to come to judge the living and the dead. Now, does he come to pronounce uh, a judgment of mercy on everyone? Or does he sort the sheep and the goats out, right? Why don't we think about Christ as judge uh, much today? In fact, I don't think most people even associate judgment with Christ. I think that if there's any uh, sort of tendency... uh, for, say, subliterate Christians, <laughs> I think the tendency is to associate judgment with the Father and then mercy with the Son. And there are reasons to, to think in, in those terms. Uh, one of those reasons is Jesus does, does, does say, I did not come to judge, but to, you know, give my life as a ransom and, and so forth. So uh, that's true, but that's not the whole story. Uh, well, there is a second coming, and the second coming is not simply to rapture and uh, sort of help get folks out of the burning ballroom. <laughs> there is a a wrath that is revealed, the wrath of God, and that revelation is an apocalypse. Apocalypse means revelation. And there is a wrath that remains on the world even now. People when they read John 3:16 they ought to go on to read 17, 18 and 19 and they'll see that it's only the case that God's love is enjoyed in Christ. If you are not in Christ, God's wrath remains on you. So the guy with the rainbow wig, you know, he doesn't get up uh, at the old foot. This this takes us back to the 70s and the 80s. The guy with the <laughs> rainbow wig at the football games would hold up the sign, John 316, whenever there was a field goal or an extra point, and he'd get on uh, television. Uh, those who are older, like uh, Glenn and I, <laughs> can remember that guy. <laughs> I remember <laughs> <Glenn> me. <laughs> that guy. Now it's the rainbow flag. But that's right. That's right. Rainbow <laughs> wig. That's right. That's right. But that, but that guy never held up John 318. <laughs> right? 
But Christ the judge, remember at, at the Areopagus when Paul uh, gets to the end of the sermon, he says that this man that, that the Father has appointed will be the judge of the world, and the sign indicating that is, is that he's been raised from the dead. So the judgment of Christ, I think, is something that we don't think about, and we don't have many artists who help us think about it today. I think, you know, in the medieval world, in antiquity, when we think about uh, the icons of the East, Christ in judgment is everywhere. But we don't see that anywhere in the uh, contemporary evangelical church. Yeah, I think that there are two things there. I was going to point out the fact that Christ as judge was more or less a dominant theme um, in the Middle Ages in terms of how he was perceived, which is why you need his mother to soften his wrath against you. It's one one of the reasons why the cult of Mary develops. Right. Um, But along with that, by the way, for those Catholics out there, I'm not using the word cult in a pejorative sense. I'm using it in its anthropological sense, a body of, of practices related to worship. Right. So um, the other thing, though, is that we're seeing in evangelicalism a backlash against uh, the old fundamentalist preaching of hellfire and brimstone and such. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I I grew up when I when I came to faith, I grew up hearing people talking about hellfire and damnation sermons and how we need to get away from those. Um, And I never heard one. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I literally never heard one, but people were so paranoid in the evangelical world about that style of preaching that they would talk about them as if they were commonplace and they weren't. And what that does is it shifts us away from the fact of judgment and more toward um, a focus on mercy, which, of course, is is proper. Sure. But there has to be a balance there. Yeah. Well, I think, too, that wrath is unequivocally masculine. So you're not too afraid of your mom after a certain point in your uh, development. I can remember when I realized that mom couldn't hurt me anymore. And I, my dad still could. <laughs> that went on for a long time. <laughs> yeah, I heard in German families, the German mom is always to be feared. But <laughs> well, that, the, the thing, the, think about it, think about it, though. Seriously, though, Tom, uh, when 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 is a as a woman no longer able to to control her son? Yeah. Usually in his mid-teen years. And this is yeah. one of the reasons why uh, fatherless homes uh, are so uh, particularly uh, in you know. Uh, challenging environments like the inner city and so forth, so dangerous and so chaotic. Uh, often single women who are do- doing the best they can, they've got maybe one or two, three, who knows how many boys who have gotten to a certain age where they're like, no, I want to go out. I'm going out and I'm going to do what I want and you're not going to stop me. And I've seen it again and again and again. Now, getting back to my sort of my larger point, uh, so let's think about Dirty Harry. So Dirty, you know, Dirty Harry is played by Clint Eastwood, an unequivocally uh, masculine man. <laughs> and there's just no, there's no, uh, you know, way to think of of him any other way. 
in, I don't know, has he ever played a sensitive person? <laughs> I, can't, I can't remember one. Maybe, maybe one out there. Somebody out there in podcast land can think of it. Uh, maybe play Misty for me or something. Possibly play Misty for me. <laughs> right. That's where I was going. Yeah. Or maybe uh, Paint Your Wagon, where he plays. <laughs> and, <laughs> and he sings. Yeah, he sings. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but uh, I, the, the image that we all have is of Clint shooting, you know, the bad in the good, the bad, and the ugly at the very end and just not even blinking. <laughs> just, <laughs> you know, that, that's, that's Clint. So Lee Van Cleef is the guy he shot, who was a pretty bad dude himself. But, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, now when we think about this, uh, now how, why, why, are, why am I making this case? Well, there are th certain things that occur in the film that I think are signals to, the, to an observant, uh, you know, person who is in the audience, that there's something going on here that's significant and maybe more significant than, than, than people might assume. So like when I was a kid and people would talk about Dirty Harry, all my, my friends, they were just into the guns, you know, into the violence, into the kind of the, the attitude and all that kind of stuff. They had zero the, uh, ability to pick up on these nuances and these signals. But now Maybe they could, as grown men, if they have some background in these things. I can see you smiling there, Glenn. You're, you're just itching to say something. I, I remember watching <laughs> Dirty Harry when I was in high school, and I memorized the speech. <laughs> <laughs> I can still recite it. <laughs> I think most boys know exactly what you, were, what you did, because they did the same thing. <laughs> so, but, but the film begins, if you, if you recall, with a list sort of of the dead, who had died in service uh, as policemen in the city of San Francisco. And there are the funeral bells ringing uh, as this is occurring. And what are they ringing out? Oh, God, our help in ages past. That's the beginning of the film. Now, uh, and now th then there is this sort of creepy female vocal that that it segues into. And then the next thing you see is the psycho with the gun. And he's on a rooftop and he's, he's zeroing in on a girl who's swimming in a pool on a neighboring roof that's lower than the one that he's on. And then he shoots her. But throughout the film, that vocal of that eerie female voice comes in at significant points in the film. So that's, that's the initial framing. Uh, what happens a little later when we see Harry on the roof of a stakeout? Um, so the psycho shoots this woman and says that his next victim is going to be either a, a black person or a Catholic priest. So they have a stakeout at a church because a black boy has been killed. So they know the next in line is going to be a Catholic priest. That's significant. And as they're on the roof, Harry's on the roof with his partner, um, right over Harry's head in this whole scene, there's a rotating giant neon sign. Jesus saves. <laughs> there's a direct connection to Harry because as you see that it's turning right over his head, you know, it's pretty clear that it's, he's supposed to save somebody right now. And uh, what, what was his name? Serp what was the name of the uh, killer? He went by uh, uh, Scorp Scorpio. Scorpio. But he, did, did you see him um, almost? He almost became ecstatic and excited when he shot that sign. 
And oh yeah, some of the letters off of it. Yeah, that's right. So, so just to play it out, so they're 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 on the stakeout by a Catholic church, and in the dialogue between Harry and his partner, um, it is revealed that Harry had volunteered to yeah. to disguise himself as a Catholic priest so that he could be the one that Scorpio is targeting, and yeah. then the priest refused. To, to, to go through with that and wanted to be the guy himself. But this whole idea of substitution is introduced at this yeah. point. So there's this, yeah. this idea that Harry is willing to be the substitute for the Catholic priest. Jesus saves rotating over his head. Then Scorpio, which, by the way, Scorpio of the, of the Zodiac, the signs of the Zodiac, is the most passionate and dangerous of all the signs. I know a little bit about it because I'm a Scorpio. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so the, so this is what's going on, and then uh, Clint sees him, and then there's the gu- there's the, the the gunfight, and in the gunfight, uh, it's revealed that Scorpio actually has a a, a machine gun and is shooting uh, at uh, you know Clint and his partner, and Clint's partner gets hurt and he's injured and goes to the hospital. But that you know, there's an in- interesting point there uh, it, it, about the uh, his partner. <laughs> Um, uh, you know, it's something that dawned on me. First of all, th- th- you know, this isn't a politically correct film. And one of the things about Clint Eastwood is he will call, he will use all the pejoratives <laughs> of the term. Right. Now, one of the things is, is he's got a, he's a it's a, um, the, the, his sidekick that gets pulled in to work with him is uh, Chico Gonzalez. Right. And the first thing that, uh, uh, you know, Dirty Harry does is harass the guy a bit and gives right. him a hard time and calls him a bunch of names <laughs> that would be considered probably racist by today's standards. <laughs> Right. But one of the things that is noticeable is it doesn't throw off Gonzalez. But secondly, it shows that that kind of external um, back and forth really didn't reveal the heart of what Dirty Harry was up to. Dirty yep. Harry actually is cultivating, bringing this person alongside in the mission. Right. And yes, this one gets impacted and shot, but later he almost protects him by saying, you know what, you don't you're not going to be the sacrifice. You need to go be with your family. And then they asked him why, in his case, he didn't. And he's, he's basically, well, it, this is my mission, in a sense. Yeah. Well, and one of the things that's, that is sort of the mystery or, another, or sort of a puzzle throughout the course of the, of the story is why is he called Dirty Harry? Yeah. So there are different uh, explanations for why he's called Dirty Harry. But uh, the first one is that uh, he hates everybody. <laughs> so he, he, everyone, he, he uses uh, an insulting term for everybody he, he meets in the film. Interesting point right there, though, is on the one hand, today we have the classic kind of leftist liberal who uh, loves humanity but hates every particular person. <laughs> well, what right. you have here is one in a sense that hates humanity but really loves the particular people by his his disposition towards them. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it becomes very clear that he is deeply invested in justice and making sure that people are not harmed by this crazed killer. But, yeah, I think that's a great point. So the the two other theories that come up, you know, he hates everybody. That's why he's called Dirty Harry. The next one is that he's – He's kind of got a dirty mind, and that's kind of dismissed that that maybe he's got some kind of sexual uh, sort of fetish or something. But what what Harry says, and then it, it everybody kind of agrees, is that Harry does the dirty job that no one else wants to do. That's the thing. There's a dirty job that has to be done 
No one else is willing to do it. There's that marvelous scene. So you wonder, why don't they get rid of Harry? Because they yeah. know that he will do what none of the other people are willing to do. <laughs> yeah. So there's this uh, there's the, there's a scene where Harry is with the police chief, and and the police chief has got his lint brush out, and he's trying to clean his suit, yeah. and he's talking yeah. to Harry about some kind of you know is, is sort of in the course of this investigation something that really has I can't remember the the, the moment or the circumstances, but it was pretty clear that Harry is going to do the thing that no one else yeah. is willing to do. And this is almost like a pilot moment where like yeah. he's, you know, cleaning his, his, his uh, uniform and complaining yeah. about how the uniform collects lint and how yeah. he needs to make sure that the lint doesn't collect on his uniform. And he's sending Harry out to die. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. so that, that's kind of going on as well. So I, I think that's that I think, and that's where the conversation stopped. And then in fact, Gonzalez is, is, is a, what was it? What was his name again? Was it Gonzalez? I think it was it's something like uh, Chico Gonzalez or Chico. something along. The, yeah. yeah. Well, and and he he becomes Harry's kind of advocate. He yeah. he does agree uh, by the end that Harry is the guy that yeah. does all the dirty work, and no one else is willing yeah. to do it. Well, I think if if I remember right, that came up when uh, they sent. <laughs> You, you really need a sensitive guy for this. A suicide negotiation. Yeah. <laughs> they, they, they send Harry in. Oh, yeah, up and, to the top of his chair. Oh, yeah. And, and, um, and That's great. That, that, that dialogue is, is truly remarkable. It's one of the most unique attempts to negotiate someone off a, uh, a ledge that I, I have ever seen filmed. Well, but, but, when, but afterwards, Gonzalez says... That's why something to the effect of that's why they call him Dirty Harry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, and, and because he goes up and does these these things that nobody else will do. And and it, it's interesting to see Harry's sort of read of the guy. So here's a guy who's looking for sympathy. Yeah. So he's up there. He doesn't really want to jump. It's pretty clear he's a coward. He's looking for attention, yeah. um, looking for sympathy, and Harry doesn't give him any of it. <laughs> <laughs> And Larry eventually punches him to knock him out to bring him back. <laughs> well, remember, remember when he says, you know, yeah, you know, don't get too close to me now. You know, you you guys are trying to jump. You know, you want to take other people with you. You know, <laughs> you know I remember this last time I was at, you know, a suicide guy jumped. Yeah, oh, it's just it so splatter. disgusting. It's, it's a splatter. splatter. Got all <laughs> brains. Got everybody's clothes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he's getting the and the and the, guy, and the suicide guy is like getting angrier and angrier and angrier with Harry, and he lunges at Harry, and Harry just grabs him and then takes him down, <laughs> lunges him, gets to knock him out, so he's easy to carry down. <laughs> right, right. But that I do think that's a revealing moment. But I think that there are two other moments in the film that really stand out as revelatory. So uh, after the failed attempt to. Uh, kill a Catholic priest. Um, Scorpio abducts a. You know, she, he 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 takes a girl, and uh, he uh, and puts her into a. I think a cistern. She's underground. Uh, she, her oxygen supply is limited. She's like fourteen years old, pretty yeah. little girl, and he sends a note to the mayor. Who is a real slime ball? I mean, every, everybody, everybody in sort of the bureaucracy of the San Francisco government is a total slime ball in the film, and uh, Harry has zero respect for any of them. <laughs> 
but the um, uh, so he sends a ransom note and says that he needs two hundred thousand dollars. You know, in today's money, I get maybe that'd be like two million dollars, but uh, two hundred thousand dollars, and it has to be delivered uh, yeah. at, to a location that he indicates. Now, initially, uh, he's Harry is the guy who's set as the courier. He volunteers for the job. You know, he's, it's kind of like obvious that no one else would do it, and Harry does yeah. it. Um, he's in touch with his partner by a kind of a, a microphone. Um, but uh, so we follow Harry, and the, he goes to the to the first location he's told to go to with the money, and it's a telephone booth, uh, and the phone is ringing, and he picks up the phone, and it's Scorpio, and Scorpio then takes him on this sort of uh, wild goose chase around San Francisco. And then finally, and this is interesting, finally he sends him to uh, Mount Davidson Park. Davidson mm-hmm. was an interesting, and it's an actual park. And in the middle of that real park, there's an enormous concrete cross. And mm-hmm. he, Scorpio tells uh, Harry to meet him at the foot of the cross. And then what happens is so obvious. He's got the ransom money. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and then, you know, he, the only reason he's there is to save the girl from death. Yeah. And uh, at that moment, uh, Scorpio just starts beating Harry to a pulp. And yeah, Harry right can't on right. Basically on the cross almost up against it and beside it. Yeah. 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 And Harry and, and Harry can't fight back because he needs to know where the girl is. That's the yeah. thing. He he. You know, he's like, tell me where the girl is. And he's just letting this guy beat him because he needs yeah. to get that information. Yeah. Uh, of course, uh, you know, Scorpio says he's just going to kill her anyway, and he's not going to tell Harry where she is. And at that moment, Harry reveals that uh, he has a switchblade in his sock and then takes that switchblade and stabs uh, Scorpio in the leg, which, of yeah. course, sends blood flowing and it makes it easy for them to find Scorpio later. But that was a huge moment. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts uh, on that? Well, I mean, it definitely, you know, it connects to the, the you know, um, the willingness to undergo suffering for finding the life of this girl. She ends up, they find, end up, she, they don't save her in this case. Um, and right. this is where you start to see. Um, and some of that also went along with, um the incompetence that was demonstrated by the overly politicized legal system, um, everyone wanting to basically clean their hands of it. And in a sense, Harry's trusted with it because he'll do the dirty work. But in a sense, he also has a, he, he has a sense of higher justice, I think, at this point. And I think that that's a significant that shows that he's willing to suffer unlike the others in the legal system for for some for someone um, he cares about them, but on the on the flip side, that he 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 is committed to that higher sense of justice. That that if needs be, he has to, as you'll see, in, you know, a little bit later in it, where he just vi- you know, he doesn't get a warrant and he goes chasing this guy where he lives to, and almost uh, you know, uh, putting him through a little bit of torture to get the information about the girl. Um, but that ends up hurting the legal case. Right. Which he has to go rectify. Yeah, I do think that the, the Dirty Harry is intended to be, in part, an a, uh, indictment of our legal system. Um, right. Another thing from the period that I remember, um, 
there had been a kidnapping where a girl was kidnapped and buried alive in a like a coffin with a fan or something like that that would let air in but with a limited battery life and there was a light in there and it said look don't use the light unless you absolutely have to because you want the battery to last longer and they it actually happened and what you see Scorpio doing is a copycat of a real crime that people in that period were very familiar with. I, 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 w- I was 13 when the movie came out, and I knew about that one. Yeah. 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 That was similar with the Zod- I think the Zodiac killer as well, the, the uh, taunting of the police and that I'm going to up this next game if you can't figure, you know, you can't work mm-hmm. this out. He kind of knew that there was a political environment within the legal system that almost handicapped them from actually being able to solve solve these these crimes. So, yeah, you're talking real live uh, situations that this character is 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 enacting this story in. Right. And that's why uh, that's why it's an indictment of the police force. It's an indictment of all of these things that in an era in which there is a lot of violence and crime the police are either unable or unwilling to, and the politicians certainly are unwilling, to do what it takes to end the crime. And that's why Dirty Harry comes off as as something of a hero, even though he's kind of like doing a lot of things that would get him arrested. Yeah, and, and if you recall, at the time that the film came out, um, you know, it was accused of being fascist in character. Um, there were a lot of people who hated the film and uh, condemned it. Um, and I think in part because it's an indictment of the impotence of our legal system. And, I, and, I, and, and this gets me back to this larger question of how does Dirty Harry uh, sort of make, how can we make sense of it as a work of Christian imagination? I think one of the things that it's intended to do is to, sh- is to reveal to us uh, the inadequacy of human institutions uh, when it comes to uh, serving the cause of justice. That doesn't mean that those institutions are things we can live without. Uh, we, we've got to have them. But, it, but it, I think what it's getting at is that uh, we're never going to have the kind of justice that we long for in this world. I mean, the, the institutions that are intended to serve justice are so easily uh, con- corrupted. And in, and in some cases, and, and this is, you know, what follows. So you, you, you guys have gotten into a little bit of what, what follows uh, this incident at the, at the cross. Harry does find the, the, the home of the, of the killer. He needs to get the information. Where is the girl? And he resorts to, um, Essentially, uh, inflicting pain to to get the information. That's you know he's got to have the information. So he's 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 willing to make a trade off or make an exchange. In other words, uh, the life of the girl, the pain of the guy. That's it. Uh, now, while Harry's doing this to get the information uh, that will ho- hopefully save the girl's life, uh, the guy who's being you know being uh, um, you know. To, you know, Scorpio is, you know, crying foul and 
claiming that his rights are being violated and claiming so, injustice. Yeah, claiming <laughs> injustice. <laughs> that, so procedural yeah. justice uh, yeah. has a an, you know sort of triumphs over Trump's um, final justice. Now, yeah. in our world, that you know, uh, those protocols I think are things that we really should follow. I'm not saying that this is a a movie that helps us to say or justify getting rid of those things. I think what what we're dealing with here is the inadequacy of human efforts to secure perfect justice, and and, and the and the and the the need for it to be attained. Um, yeah. And 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 I think, I mean, I think connected to that point, you see at the very end after he has executed um, on his own, remember he is off now from working from the police department. He's on his own time. So he's not (laughs) indicting them, but it is in this space, which, which I would argue is that transcendent dimension in which he is enacting that, that form of transcendent justice, which is symbolized interestingly at that time, still with Jesus saves and the cross Um, today, that would be considered oppressive. Then it was considered, transcendent. Um, but what he does is he throws his his star, his police star away at the end. And it's almost like that temporary form of justice brought us this far, but now now that can be done away. That, that the fulfilled justice has been executed. Um, so in a sense, it's the transcendent absorbing the temporal at the right moment. Yeah, well, let's jump ahead to that, because that is another, I think, revelatory uh, moment in the film. So so getting to the end of the film, uh, Scorpio is still on the loose. He's been released by the by uh, the authorities because Harry failed to follow, you know, the protocols that he's supposed to follow as a police officer. And uh, Harry in his free time is is like following this guy around because <laughs> he he knows that he's going to going to kill again. Anyway, uh, at the very end of the film, Scorpio takes control of a school bus full of kids. And this school bus is, you know, obviously taking kids home after a day of, you know, in public school. And he's got them singing songs. You know, Mary had a little lamb and all these different kind of creep. You know, it's a very creepy scene because he has them singing these nursery songs, nursery rhymes and things like like that. But, um, and I think that's, for effect, <laughs> but mm-hmm. it's but what he's doing is he he wants to uh, again have his two hundred thousand dollars, and this time he wants to uh, have a plane. And this again is a period piece. Remember hijacking? Hijacking was a real uh, kind of thing, and and every once in a while you'd hear maybe every six months or so some guy had managed to take over an airplane and fly have it fly to Cuba or you know, wherever he wanted it to go. And, Enjoy Cuba. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> that's right. Right. So, so this time, uh, this guy says, I'm going to, you know, unless you let me get to the airport, I'm going to kill these kids one at a time. And they know he can, he can do it. He was willing to do it. The mayor capitulates again, and it's going to give yeah. him everything he wants. Uh, Harry on his own over, uh, well, he overhears, you know, the, uh, in the course of the conversation, Scorpio, uh, tells them exactly the the the, the route that they're going to take to the airport. So Scorpio is doing that because he doesn't want any police interference, and he wants them to be completely out of sight as he's making this trip to the airport with these kids. Of course, this tells Harry exactly what he needs to do. 
and, and I think and Harry was well aware that the promise to leave the kids alone was a, a fake promise from yeah. all the previous. So he knew at this point he had to act. The moral thing to do, the right thing to do was, was to act in this situation. It was. That's exactly right. So I, I think that's one of the things that gets lost often when kind of good hearted people are dealing with evil. Good hearted people are not, I think, prepared to deal with uh, wickedness and lies um, because they can't imagine anyone behaving in those ways. They, they, they more or less project themselves into the heart uh, and into the life of a wicked person. And they believe that, well, I would, I would change my way if somebody shared or, or showed some concern for me. Uh, or gave me what I wanted or whatever, uh, if I felt like I was a victim of injustice. Well, yeah, I mean, you're a healthy person. (laughs) You've not been corrupted by wickedness. Uh, There are a lot of people out there who are more than happy to just take whatever you give them and just leave you behind. And Harry knows this. No one else seems to know this. And so he knows, I think you're absolutely right, Tom, that these kids are not safe, that he won't keep his promises, that they're probably all going to be killed. So what does he do? He goes to the, uh, you know, a, a location on the, on the route to the airport where there's a bridge that goes over the road. And he's yeah. there standing at the bridge in his extremely cool way. <laughs> there's, there's no one cooler in silhouette than, than Clint Eastwood. And he's, he's, a, he's there on the bridge. He's got his sunglasses on. He's looking extremely cool. He's got this 45 in his, in his, in his holster. And he sees the bus coming. And what does Scorpio say when he looks up and sees Harry on the bridge? Do you remember? He takes the Lord's name in vain. That's right. He says, Jesus Christ. And at that moment, Harry descends on the bus. (laughs) It's like the second coming. (laughs) And the way the film ends, of course, is Harry saves the kids, kills the character. And there are all those great lines that kids like us memorized years ago. (laughs) And we missed the point (laughs) because the lines were so great. But the larger the the larger point is that uh, justice is served. Um, he executes this criminal who is, of course, we as viewers of the film know he's guilty. We know that everything that led up to this point means that he deserves to die. Yeah, un- unrepentant. His, I mean, he was shown enough episodes. Yeah. To be repentant, right? And at the very end, it's kind of a coming to Jesus moment. Yeah. If you recall. It's like, yeah. <laughs> and yes. Harry Harry does give him one more chance, but then the guy hardens his heart. Yeah. And it, now Harry is taunting him. I, I so let me let me put that differently. It's not as though he's saying, Come to Jesus. He's he's saying, yeah. you know, do you feel lucky, punk? <laughs> Well, well, in a way, you're right. Then, but the tone of voice on the punk is really important. The tone of voice is critical. It is. It is. But if you remember earlier, it, there is a certain there is a certain moment in that offer that is genuine. Because remember that remember when he's in the diner and there is the robbery going on, and the same thing happens to to yeah. to a, a, one of the guy, and, and the guy doesn't reach, but he wanted to know. 
He's curious, right. you know, what what would have happened? But he, he says the same thing, but he doesn't have, you know, it's almost in a weird way you have a kind of episode of, of mercy and election. And, you know, there's interesting things going on. Oh, yeah. That. Yeah, so let's fill, let's fill in the, the podcast audience and what we're talking about here. So early in the film, there's a bank robbery, bank robbery and Harry sees, uh, and, uh, sees what's going on, and he actually takes action and uh, shoots some of the gang, uh, the, the, the bank robbers. And, and these are guys who are heavily armed, and they're shooting as well. It's not as though yeah. he's just doing this uh, without any justification. Anyway, uh, he fires a number of bullets at a car that's coming right at him, intending to yeah. run him down. And we don't know how many bullets are you know, in his gun initially. And so uh, there's a character, there's a, there's a guy who had a shotgun. He's laying on the ground. He's been hit. He's wounded. He's bleeding. Harry comes up to him and he says, you know, uh, he points the gun at him. Uh, 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 I know what you're thinking. <laughs> Did he fire six shots or only five? Well, in all the excitement, I lost track myself. So now you have to ask yourself a question. Do you feel lucky today? <laughs> well, do you, punk? <laughs> so that's exactly the line that he, that uh, as, as Glenn has demonstrated, he did memorize it when he was 13. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, everybody in my school did too. But, yep. <laughs> and then, and then uh, you know, Harry just lowers his gun when the guy surrenders and he's about to walk away and the guy says, but I got to know, did you really have a bullet? And then Harry just pick, points the gun at him and click. Then Harry just starts laughing. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, Harry yeah. didn't know how many bullets he had shot. <laughs> and there was nothing left in the gun. At the end, though, there is one bullet left. And he says the same thing to, to Scorpio. And when he says punk at that moment, again, the character has the gun within reach, his own gun within yeah. reach, just like, just like in the earlier episode. But in this case, uh, he does go for the gun and Harry shoots him. Yeah. Um, but you know, there's this oh. moment. Oh, yeah. I forgot, I forgot some of the, the, the key lines, but seeing that this is a 44 Magnum, the world's most powerful <laughs> handgun, and that this yeah. range is likely to blow your head clean off, <laughs> you got to ask yourself a question. I forgot that part. My apologies. That's right. That's right. Thank you, Glenn, for making sure that we get that accurately but, recorded. But, but you have in there again, a certain kind of, you know, this is judgment. When you take seriously what what judgment entails, you're talking about something far worse than that, but it's at least that bad, you know? <laughs> so I, I, I'll confess that my wife watched Dirty Harry with me last night, and she <laughs> wanted Scorpio to die. Now, my wife is one of the most pleasant and uh, gentle and likable women you'll ever meet. I think everyone who knows my wife feels that way but she really wanted harry to kill scorpio really bad <laughs> and i think most of the people who watch the film would feel the same way i mean the character is vile uh in fact i i saw i was watching it on amazon prime and one of the fun things about amazon prime is it gives you a little trivia you know yeah. uh, as you're watching the film and apparently the guy who plays scorpio i don't remember the actor's name he had death threats uh after the film came out uh, because people, you know, were so upset with him and, and really. <laughs> <laughs> he has to be one of the most reprehensible characters I've ever seen. Oh, yeah. 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 You they really do hate him. Perfect, perfect look and everything. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, and at the end, you remember the scene at the, you know, at the foot of the cross, he's wearing a ski mask. 
It's a red yeah, ski yeah. mask. So all you can yeah. see is his eyes, and his eyes are just totally wacko. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and even when he has the 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 limp, the yeah. way he kind of skirts and runs, it's creepy. It, it, it really there is something right. that it develop, the demeanor is really it, you you can see almost the way in which that reprehensible character is embodied in in the you know the movement the 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 pace it, it is it was really done well <laughs> well the guy who wrote the screenplay was john milius mm-hmm. and john milius is the guy behind uh, apocalypse now and the judge uh, roy, roy right. bean so he's a guy he's an interesting character and i think that he's so politically incorrect that that there's just no way that he could get any work today in hollywood he's still alive hmm. um but uh, he was a, a personal friend of, of uh, George Lucas and Steven Spielberg, super connected. But, you know, his films have that kind of very strong, masculine sort of uh, kind of uh, character as it re- relates to kind of the, the, the reality of the world that we live in um, and the sort of, un, I guess, compromising called to justice or uh, requirement yeah. for justice. And, um, but I also think that, you know, when we, when we talk about films, so let's step back a little bit and just think a little bit in, in a larger sense about what constitutes Christian filmmaking or just art in general. Um, you know, I think about the fact that so much of our thinking concerning the Christian faith and culture today really, uh, I think is sort of occurring in the shadow of the 19th century, kind of this Victorian sentimentalist uh, way of look, of thinking about the world and about the faith. The further back you go, the more realistic and dark the faith can become. Like um, like Bosch, you know, in the Middle Ages yeah. with those paintings. I mean, yeah, Bruegel, Bosch. Yeah, um, yeah, you look at. Yeah, you look yeah. at that stuff. There is nothing um, soft or sentimental about. In fact, they are so dark they make dirty Harry seem bright. Yeah, like the Garden of Earthly, uh, what a Garden of Earthly delights. Earthly delights. And the, yeah, and the trip, <laughs> the, the yeah. judgment scene is is is. <laughs> yeah, the, the the triumph of death. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, basically what you see, you see corpses, you see half uh, sort of consumed bodies, you see just yeah. all kinds of things going on, yeah, torments. Per- perversion, and, and, but, yeah, and, and, and the faces are hideous. I mean, yeah. they really are yeah. able to gra- grapple with, I mean, they're a- able to depict a, a hideousness that becomes embodied almost. Right. So now can we imagine anything like that being, say, uh, produced by popular Christian artists in the spirit of Thomas Kincaid. Um, uh, Chris, you got to take it a step further. Can we imagine putting those up in our churches? Yeah, right. And they did. Yeah. Yeah, yeah they did. And, and they did so because they were, I think, more closely acquainted with death, with the kind of the gritty character of the world, the need to deal with reality as it's found in the world. Um, so I, I do think, and, and along with that, Chris, they were also, I think, much closer in an upfront and personal way with cruelty and evil and things like that. 
Yeah. Um, I was reading a, um, a book that was talking about, actually, was talking about a 17th century executioner. You know, it was a book on, on this guy's life. And they talked about highwaymen that would raid houses and not just steal the property, but torture the people to death inside them. Yeah. This was not an unusual kind of thing. Um, they were well aware of the extent of human evil in a way that we deny. Yeah. I think that's the right word, Glenn, deny. We live in denial. I think a lot of our political sort of, uh, I guess, impasse is due to essentially a denial of the fall. And, you know, what do you do with that? How do you I think, you know, in the past, too, they didn't have the financial or sort of uh, social uh, buffers that we do today. So if you can't afford uh, a prison that just keeps people alive, you know, and feed them and provide, you know, various forms of diversion and entertainment, what do you do? Just release them and let them you know, uh, alone and to do whatever they want to do. No, you've got to do something about that. That seems to be what's going on now with, uh, in California, New York, Connecticut, it's, uh, Oh, it's, you know, we've, <clears throat> we've failed the, you know, a certain population by, um, being overly aggressive with the legal system. And that has created the psychology that is evil. And, and it is this kind of Pelagian, if not, you know, this notion that human beings are basically good by nature and it's their, it's their allotment that has produced the conditions in which they have to enact bad actions. And if we can get rid of those or rethink, reimagine, we get rid of the, the sin and the evil. And I, and I think this is something that, that there, there are places in which those things make the problem worse, but the reimagining they have in mind isn't going to be addressing, addressing it. Um, and, and I think you're right that, that you know, previous times where the impact of the direct impact of the heinousness of people's evil, um, you even think of, you know, the celebration of, of the damned of, of in heaven. You know, there's kind of paintings yeah. and imagery of this that, that the, the heinous and evil actually is going to be um, – Right. Well, is this is it possible for us then maybe to make a generalization that uh, maybe goes like this? The more comfortable you are, the more uncomfortable hell makes you feel. The less comfortable you are, the more difficult the conditions that you live in, the more you really, you know, in your own mind, think there better be a hell. You know, a similar point. It's interesting that in, in cultures where. Um, where people are impoverished, where there's a lot of of um, of suffering, you don't find people discussing the problem of evil, right? Yeah. You know that you know here where we're comfortable, evil seems like a kind of problem. You know that that how could a good God allow these things to happen? People who are genuinely suff- suffering, you know, on a, on a large scale. Don't ask that question, right? Yeah. And in theologians, especially after World War II in the West, that basically just universalized everything and that Christ's suffering in the end 
is for everyone. And so at the end of the day, holiness and, and the life of being transformed by the spirit, pay, you know, may, may make your experience of God more deep. But in the end, you know, even the devil will be redeemed. And, and, and such theology doesn't address what we're talking about. Um, it, 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 you know, again, it's, it's therapeutic and psychological and people come up with their arguments for it. I get it. Um, but one of the things you see, I mean, in an interesting case, I think more recent, and I don't hear this so much, but I remember, if I remember right, Peter Hitchens um, started to ponder the reality of of God and and ju- by seeing the artwork of Last Judgment scenes when I think he was yeah yeah that sounds I right think he was in Paris and and he said you know it hit him in the spirit I would say that what if this is actually the case. And I think the existential yeah. um, ramifications of that, you know, and, and so here's a person, you know, who I, I think would be, that'd be, a, that'd be a complicated episode. Again, I don't know what went yeah. on in his personal life at the time, but nevertheless, it, this wasn't necessarily someone in those, that kind of environment in which they saw suffering day in, day out. And yet, nevertheless, something resonated. Um, yeah. That, yeah. yeah, I think that's, I think that's right, Tom. I, I, in my own experience, um, as I've looked around, uh, it does seem to be a truism that the more comfortable and sort of sheltered you, you, your, your life has been, the less comfortable you are with the doctrine yeah. of hell uh, or the notion that Christ is the judge. Uh, the more challenging your environment has been, the more likely you are to understand and accept and actually take comfort in those Christian truths. So, well, we should probably wrap things up. Um, I guess the takeaway that I'd like for folks to to have from the show is that we're not trying to say that the writers necessarily had all of the things we talked about in mind when they wrote the script. Uh, we're not necessarily saying that everything about the film is praiseworthy and should be uh, extolled. Uh, or try- <laughs> We're not saying, too, that every little thing in the film uh, is symbolic in character and feeds into a kind of tight, uh, <laughs> a kind of allegorical framework that you can <laughs> work with. We're not saying any of those things. We're just saying that this is a work of Christian imagination. And if, if the imagination of the writers had not been informed— by the Christian faith, certainly they wouldn't have used some of the symbolism that they did in the film. But I don't think they would have even thought of uh, these things in these terms necessarily. Um, I don't think this film could be made today uh, for a range of reasons. I don't think anybody would fund it. I don't think anybody would write it um, yeah. who, uh, who, 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 that you see in Hollywood. I think it's, a, it's, a, it's something that maybe we'll look back on as a real work of art at this point it's a just pop culture kind of thing it's not like i'm not, I'm not trying to say this is high art either <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it does reflect i think some maybe some concerns and some themes that we will see revived in the future we'll see a revival of these interests or these these things uh in the days ahead but anyway that's all i've got to say about it yeah i the the only thing i would add is that on another level, it fits into a vigilante genre that was popular in the oh, period. Yeah. yeah. Um, and again, that came about because of the 
perceived inability of the police, um, they're being hamstrung by, by the courts and things like that, to actually achieve justice. Right. And, um, you know, so so it fits into that kind of narrative as well. You think of a movie like Death Wish or you know, oh, yeah. any number of others that do the same kind of thing. Um, yeah. These days, the vigilante is more likely be, to be the person hunted by the police in the movies. Yeah, like like uh, Rambo or something. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, well, thank you so much for listening to the Theology Podcast and getting all the way to the end. Uh, and uh, at the end, we usually tell people uh, about ways that they can support the show. And we have a number of people who do that, uh, people who support us through Patreon or through the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network, or sometimes just reach out to us and say, hey, we want to give you money. And uh, so thank you for, for, for that. We do have expenses, and uh, the, the, everything that comes in goes to meet those expenses. It's pretty amazing in God's providence how it all sort of plays out. We, we just seem like they have, have just enough money every month to pay the bills. <laughs> we don't take anything. Uh, we're glad, of course, for the show. It's, uh, it's great to be able to connect with people around the world, really, through this uh, podcast. And we hope that this particular show on this really odd topic, Dirty Harry, Is It a Christian Film? <laughs> well, it was entertaining for you. All right. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye.